Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Today on the docket, we have a single episode from the podcast, Generation Y. Hosts Aaron Habel and Justin Evans have been in the game since 2012. This show has a very simple, casual vibe to it, but their case coverage is always super pro. And I will admit, I have taken this one for granted. I've been known to stray away for long stretches of time, distracted by the latest and greatest new big-budget true crime series with lots of sound design and audio effects. But oftentimes when that fancy new show inevitably fails to deliver and I'm left feeling burned by yet another squandered audio investment... I'll come crawling back to my tried-and-true fellows from Generation Y for a no-frills satisfying crime story. These guys are always bringing cases to my attention that I've never heard before. Cases where I'm like, dude, how is everyone not talking about this? And their coverage of the Gladys Ricard murder is a prime example. Before we go there to take your listening experience to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. This story in particular is especially enhanced by the visuals. Because unlike most cases, we have tons of photos the day that she died, plus the whole murder was caught on videotape. Because Gladys Ricard was killed the day of her wedding. You remember that feeling of watching old Disney movies as a kid and imagining your future life based on these lovely fantasies. And you also remember that first time your idyllic fantasy view of the world was destroyed by a harsh reality. That's what it's like seeing home movies of Gladys on the day of her wedding. She truly looked like a Disney princess 
so beautiful and beaming with joy, about to experience her dream wedding, one moment living in a blissful fantasy, and the next dying in a horrific tragedy. Before we get to her wedding and the day of Gladys Rickard's death, we need to learn how she got here. Gladys was born in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic in 1960. At age 19, she had her son Davis, and Gladys dreamed of a better life for her and her child in the States. So at the age of 22, she took her entire life savings and immigrated to the U.S. to the Washington Heights neighborhood in New York City. Her son Davis spent a few years with a relative while Gladys got herself established, and then he was able to join her, along with her sister, nieces, and brother. Life was definitely challenging, but happy for Gladys. She learned English, enrolled in a local community college where she took accounting classes, and she worked her way up to a supervisor role at an accounting firm in Manhattan. Yeah, total badass, right? In addition to being a wonderful mother with her son, she was also a huge role model to her young nieces. Gladys was that aunt, the one you'd have a blast with, could go to with all your problems, and count on her for helpful advice. Her niece later says that Gladys was the most Americanized in her family, and Gladys helped her with her college applications so she could achieve the American dream as well. But real talk, though, isn't college like another Disney fantasy for a lot of us? I mean, I paid a whole lot of money to, quote, study studio art and faff around for four years. And I only remember like half of it uh, because of the paint fumes. Gladys actually used her degree and applied herself. She had everything except that special someone to share her life with. Then, one day in 1992, Gladys was riding the subway into Manhattan, and she sat down next to a man named Augustine Garcia. He was also an immigrant from the Dominican. He worked his way up to become a prominent businessman, was a political activist, and also ran a nonprofit community organization to serve other Dominican immigrants in the Washington Heights neighborhood. Gladys and Augustine fell in love and eventually they moved in together to the suburb of Bergen, New Jersey, along with Augustine's two children from a previous relationship and Gladys's son, Davis. On the outside, it seemed like a perfect match. Two high-achieving, self-made, proud Dominicans living the American dream. Everyone in their community thought they were the ideal couple when they saw them out at social events. But Gladys started to confide to her closest friends and family that Augustine was not Prince Charming. While dating Gladys, he was also seeing other women on the side. Augustine was very controlling of Gladys and even threatened her with his gun, a pistol he always carried on him. In one heightened argument, she wrestled it out of his hand and locked herself inside a bathroom until he calmed down. As if that wasn't all bad enough, Augustine acted like an evil stepfather to her son, treating him much different than his own children. Eventually, Gladys and her son moved out and then got their own home in the nearby town of Ridgefield, New Jersey. But she and Augustine continued to see each other. 
until 1998, Gladys finally had enough after learning Augustine was once again cheating on her. They broke up for good, and a few months later, Gladys Ricard met another fellow accountant and musician named James Preston. They fell in love and wanted to get married as soon as possible so Gladys could try to have some more kiddos. So at the age of 38, after years of searching, Gladys had finally met her Prince Charming. She began planning her fairy tale wedding, just like one at the end of a Disney movie. But if you're listening to this story, I'm sure like me, you've consumed enough true crime content to fill an entire college course load. So now when you go back and watch those old Disney fairy tales with fresh eyes, you see things very differently. Romantic gestures played for laughs now come off as problematic and sometimes downright sinister. Aladdin pretends he's a baller and seduces Jasmine under false pretenses. The Beast kidnaps Belle and gets all roid-ragey with her when she touches his flower. And Cinderella's quote love story was as superficial as a Tinder fling. Honestly, there's only one example of a healthy Disney couple in my opinion, and they're not even human. I'm talking about the Fox versions of Robin Hood and Maid Marian. Hashtag relationship goals! Plus, their wedding was tasteful and understated. And also, also, Robin Hood the Fox was the hottest Disney hero. Ooh, Delali. Ugh, God, Disney has me so confused. But besides the exception of the foxes from Nottingham, we all grew up watching romantic fantasies filled with stalking, abusive, and gaslighting behavior. It's no wonder so many of us have been in situations where we've ignored the red flags and gotten entangled in toxic relationships. Gladys Ricard had been trapped in her abusive relationship for over seven years. She and Augustine were back and forth on and off for so long until she was finally able to escape. But Augustine Garcia refused to let Gladys Ricard go. Six weeks before her wedding, Augustine showed up to her home in the middle of the night. Gladys refused to open the door for him, and Augustine flew into a violent rage, throwing rocks at her door until she had to call 911. Police arrived on the scene and subdued him. Once the situation was diffused, Gladys declined to press charges. She didn't want to do anything that could potentially hurt Augustine or his family. Those closest to Gladys said she was the kind of person who would brush things under the rug, ignore problems, and just hope they'd go away on their own. She had made mentions of Augustine's abuse, but she always insisted on handling it on her own. Looking back now, her close friends and family wish she had told them the extent of the situation. Maybe they could have done something to prevent this whole tragedy. Which brings us to the day of her wedding, September 26th, 1999. Even though Gladys had been engaged only a few months, she'd been dreaming about her wedding for years, studying bridal magazines like they were $300 college textbooks. Gladys knew exactly what she wanted. Her nieces were among her eight bridesmaids, and her son Davis, who was now 20 years old, was going to walk her down the aisle. She hired a videographer to document her big day. 
Gladys got ready in her home in Ridgefield, New Jersey, with her entire wedding party. And then she posed for dozens of pictures in her full bridal regalia. Gladys looked absolutely breathtaking. And while she was inside taking photos, presenting flowers one by one to her bridal party, her ex-boyfriend, Augustine, is circling around her block in his car. Finally, he parks and walks up to her front step. Gladys's brother, Juan Ricard, asks what he's doing there. Augustine answers that he was invited and here to give his regards to Gladys. Then he calmly walks into her home, finds Gladys with her bridal party in her living room, pulls out his gun, and begins shooting. Gladys's brother and son tackle Augustine to the ground, but he manages to crawl away for a moment and takes two more shots at Gladys, close range to her head. The chaotic scene was all caught on tape. In a matter of 30 seconds, Gladys is handing her little niece a bouquet of flowers and kissing her on the cheek, and the next moment, Gladys Ricard is dead. Moments later, the police arrive on the scene, and Augustine is immediately taken into custody. He agrees to a police interview and freely admits to driving out of his way to Gladys's home, telling police this was a common habit for him because he liked to keep tabs on his ex-girlfriend. Augustine claims on this day he saw a crowd gathered around her house and wanted to see what was up, so then he walked inside with his gun. At first, Augustine says he doesn't remember what happened, but then he admits to the police to shooting Gladys, but gives no explanation as to why. But do we really need him to give an explanation? I mean, this whole thing seems super cut and dry, right? abusive, jealous ex-boyfriend finds out his former lover is getting married and decides to shoot her. Sounds like an open and shut premeditated murder one case. How on earth is this guy going to have a defense? Well, hold on tight, friends, because things are about to get crazier than the Tower of Terror ride at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Even though I wasn't aware of this case until I stumbled upon it on the Generation Y podcast, at the time, the story of a woman being gunned down on her wedding day garnered national media attention, and many people formed their opinion of Augustine Garcia right away. But shockingly, not only does Augustine and his legal team come up with a defense strategy, his lawyer throws these pretrial press conferences to counter the media narrative and these were widely attended by pro-Augustine defenders. Because like I mentioned earlier, a lot of folks knew Augustine Garcia as the beloved businessman, community organizer, and political activist. They believed Augustine was provoked into killing Gladys in the heat of passion. And that's what his defense team will argue. They're going to try and work a manslaughter conviction, which would result in a lesser sentence of usually 5 to 10 years versus a murder conviction with a sentence of 25 to life. By the time the trial rolls around, the Dominican community was divided in their support. Prosecutors played the home videotape of Gladys Ricard in her bridal gown being gunned down by Augustine Garcia in front of her family. But the defense also had a videotape. 
They played surveillance footage from a grocery store the night before Gladys's wedding, showing Augustine Garcia and Gladys Ricard together. Augustine has his arms wrapped tightly around Gladys as they walk down the aisles together. The defense argued that Gladys never broke off the relationship with Augustine. The two were still seeing each other, and Augustine had no idea she was about to get married to somebody else. And so seeing the love of his life about to marry another man after he was just with her the night before sent him off into a fit of passion to the point where he had no control over his actions. The local Dominican community was following the case closely, and when the surveillance footage was released, it turned into a smear campaign against Gladys. The media perception of her shifted from innocent victim to heartless cheater. How dare she be out with another man right before her wedding? Some even started to wonder if Gladys deserved what she got. I can't begin to imagine how bad her family must have been hurting to see all this. Not only was their beloved Gladys murdered, now her community had turned against her. However, the prosecution took that same surveillance video footage and told an entirely different story. Instead of two lovers walking side by side in a warm embrace, the prosecution argued that Augustine had been stalking Gladys that night, which he freely admitted to doing in the past during that initial police interrogation. The prosecution surmised that Augustine followed Gladys to the grocery store that night and accosted her inside because it was a public place where he knew she was least likely to make a scene. So now when you look at that same footage, it takes on a menacing feeling. You now notice that Augustine is grabbing her from behind and Gladys has her arms folded, looking more like she's enduring his contact rather than welcoming it. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. If I were on the jury, I would have absolutely sided with the prosecution's interpretation of the grocery store surveillance video. Of course, we will never fully know the truth because Gladys isn't here to tell her side. But even if everything the defense said was true and Gladys and Augustine were still seeing each other, that doesn't mean she deserved to die. And it also doesn't change the fact that there's more evidence against Augustine that point in the direction of a premeditated murder. Point number one. Yes, Augustine usually had his gun on his person at all times, but the day he walked into Gladys's home and killed her, he had additional bullets ready in his pocket. Point number two. The day of her murder, Augustine first had a speaking engagement in the city. And then, instead of driving back to his home in Bergen, New Jersey, Augustine drove 30 minutes out of the way to Ridgefield to, quote, check on Gladys. And point number three, this bozo takes the stand and undermines his entire defense. While on the stand, in between fits of weeping, Augustine claims he walked in calmly to see Gladys, and out of nowhere, her brother and son physically attacked him. 
Augustine insisted that he only reached for his gun in self-defense. And then he was hit in the back of the head and blacked out. He tells jurors he didn't remember the actual shooting. He stands up and demonstrates the sequence of events with his defense attorney. Talk about living in a world of make-believe. The jurors aren't buying his story. Really, guy, you black out and don't remember the shooting, but somehow managed to only hit Gladys? Augustine had fired five shots in total. Three were direct hits to Gladys, and two missed her by only a few inches. His testimony completely contradicted the defense's earlier arguments, the original police statement, and the videotape. I think when it comes to Augustine, this dude and his ego couldn't handle saying it was a crime of passion and take any accountability. Instead, he's claiming no fault. I'm sure his defense team was peeved because back then, especially in that climate, I wouldn't have been surprised if they would have successfully gotten a manslaughter conviction. But the second Augustine started flapping his gums, the case fell apart faster than Cinderella's ball gown after the stroke of midnight. On October 22nd, 2001, the jury deliberated one day and found Augustine Garcia guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 2032. But that's not the end of the story. A year later, a Latina woman named Josie Ashton woke up to run the marathon in Miami, Florida. She put on her sneakers and running shorts, as well as her wedding gown. Then she ran the marathon in honor of Gladys Ricard. There's this amazing photo of Josie, and it just makes me so happy. She's in full stride. She's got her hair down, sunglasses on, and this big flowing wedding dress billowing behind her in the wind. Not only did this act help raise awareness for Gladys and other victims of domestic violence, it started a whole movement. In New York City, a group called the Latinas Against Domestic Violence formed to help educate the community. Women donned their wedding dresses with pictures of Gladys Ricard in hand, and together they marched in the streets. In 2002, Marie Claire sponsored a march in D.C. with actress Salma Hayek leading. It really is the most beautiful tribute. Even though it's not the Disney fairy tale happy ending, it is a huge step towards justice for Gladys. I myself have never worn a wedding dress because my perfect man is actually a fox and he's already married to Maid Marian. But I may just have to don one for the next Gladys Ricard annual memorial march. That's my new adult Disney fantasy. Now that I'm older, wiser, and have more in common with the evil witches. Hey, I want to mention once again that Gavin DeBecker book called The Gift of Fear, all about how to hone your survival skills to help protect against violence. This is an excellent read for any true crime fan, and honestly, I think it would make a great gift, especially to that young person in your life who is new to the adult dating world. Because let's admit it, a lot of us need some reprogramming after too many Disney princess movies. So I'll link again to that book in this week's newsletter. 
Let me know your thoughts about today's story. You can email me directly at Angela at the truecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start the ranking, um, I want to mention there's a show trending right now with excellent ratings called Burden of Guilt. I read the description and immediately knew I couldn't handle it personally, but I can see how many people out there would be really into this one. It's about a woman whose brother died as an infant, and she finds out when she's in her 40s that she might have been the one who killed him by accident back when she was a toddler. Either that or she was just a scapegoat and her family has been hiding a sinister secret for over four decades. Yeah, it does sound really intriguing, but anything with kids though, man, I have a really hard time with. So if you do check out Burden of Guilt, let me know what you think. And now let's get down to business. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Unsafe Spaces. Here's a synopsis from the show page. For close to two decades, gay men in Tampa were disappearing at an alarming rate. It was only as America became more accepting of the LGBTQ plus community that people and the media actually started to care that these men were missing. And in the wake of a decades-long battle for equality... It was all the more devastating for the gay community to discover it was one or maybe even two of their own who were responsible for what would become some of Florida's most heinous and disturbed crimes. If you are into the idea of victimology, but like to avoid treating groups of people like a monolith, then you will really appreciate this one. Host Josh Hallmark has a very thoughtful and nuanced dialogue in the first 15 minutes of the show, sharing his insight into why the addiction rate amongst gay men might have been so high. I appreciated this insight before we jumped into the case. It helped me see things very differently. And I already know I will be seeing other cases through a new lens after getting insight from this show. So I applaud the work being done on unsafe spaces. At the number two spot, we have The Wedding Scammer. Here's a reminder from the show page. Have you ever been scammed? In The Ringer's first true crime podcast, host Justin Sales tracks down a mysterious figure who once wronged him. A man with a lot of aliases, a lot of failed businesses, and a trail of victims. Justin follows him through a sham media company, a series of ruined weddings and beyond, trying to find answers. The police can't offer any help, 
but maybe he can. Episode three, and we are really cooking now. The first two episodes felt like small claims court cases, still super juicy, but kind of low stakes. But this latest episode, we are in high ticket crime territory now, baby. I was reeling for the couple in this latest episode who lost nearly everything and getting ready to mount up and track down this flim flam man myself. But lucky for me, I've got Justin Sales and his ragtag gang to do the dirty work for me so I can sit back and continue to enjoy the wedding scammer. And in the number one spot, we once again have Ghost Story. Here's a summary from the show page. Host Tristan Redman is a seasoned journalist who doesn't believe in ghosts. But weird things happened in the bedroom he lived in as a teenager. When he discovers years later that subsequent occupants of the same house have been visited by the ghost of a faceless woman, he is curious. Because it just so happens that Tristan's childhood home is right next door to the house where his wife's great-grandmother, Naomi Dancy, was murdered in 1937 killed by two gunshots to the face. Could there be a connection between the ghost and the murder? Tristan decides to investigate and soon finds himself going where no son-in-law should go, deep into his wife's family history, asking questions no one wants answered. I just finished both episodes three and four, and oh my gosh, you guys, if you haven't already, you need to start listening to this one ASAP. I don't want to spoil anything here, but yo, I need to talk about episode three. So come find me in the Facebook group and let's share our opinions. Uh, I really can't get over how much evidence they've been able to uncover from a case that's over 80 years old. It's so incredible. So please, I don't want to listen alone. Join me in my love of ghost story. Now for my miss of the week. We have infamous international, the Pink Panther story. Here's a rundown from the show page. The Pink Panthers are the world's most notorious jewel thieves, a shadowy Serbian crime syndicate who specialize in elaborate smash-and-grab heists that take only minutes but net millions. They strike ultra-exclusive jewelry stores in places like Dubai, London, and Monaco using brute force and cinematic flair that makes headlines and, quote, most wanted lists. All right, I'm actually ashamed of myself for not liking this one. The Pink Panthers gets outstanding reviews across the board, but it kind of reminds me of eating foie gras. I'm sorry, I mean foie gras. Like, I know I'm supposed to love it. It's objectively good. And I definitely don't hate it. I've tried it a few times. I'm just really not into it. Uh, it's the same with this show. I gave up after episode two because I kept zoning out and had to rewind several times just to follow along. And even now, I still can't really tell you what happened. So I'm not proud of myself, but this is my truth to say that this week I sent Infamous International, The Pink Panther Story, down my podcast queue trapdoor. 
Find out next week if Ghost Story will remain in the number one spot as the series continues, or if a new show will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three, and what show did you reluctantly have to send down your podcast queue trapdoor? I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thank you so much for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.